Welcome to Living on Earth. I'm Naomi. I support this program, and I hope you do, too. From Public Radio International, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. A new study charts the links between hotter temperatures and violence. The collapse of the Mayan Empire provides a cautionary tale for us today. So really throughout the world, a number of major civilizations have met their end following adverse climate. And I think that's something that we need to be very aware of as we look forward to the predicted global warming over the next half century. The danger of increased violence and civil war if we don't control the rising mercury. Also, invasive red crayfish in the Northwest may drive out the lovely locals altogether. Take a look at the blue color on that. It's just amazing. So these are like olive brown on the top of them, and then you flip them over, and they'll have often this blue tinge and then a red on the underside of their claws. Just absolutely gorgeous color. But if you can't beat them, some say eat them. We'll have that and more this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. Funding for Living on Earth comes from Stonyfield Farm, makers of organic yogurt, smoothies, and more. From the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios in Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. As global temperatures rise, so do the levels of domestic violence, crime, and armed conflict, according to the journal Science. Decades ago, Thomas Homer Dixon linked conflict in poor countries to scarcity of water and croplands. There were many other studies, but none quantified how global warming might affect conflict over the entire planet. Now a meta-study that delved into more than 60 previous studies from a variety of disciplines has found just how much more violence is linked to increased warming. Co-author Edward Miguel, an economics professor at the University of California, Berkeley, explains. Our study in science examines a range of other studies that have looked at the relationship between climate and violence. And we look at violence at a range of scales, everything from crime rates in the U.S. all the way up to civil war in Africa and uh, crime in other parts of the world. And the main conclusion of the study is we find a very strong relationship in periods of extreme climate, like very hot temperatures, like the heat wave going through Europe this year, for example, we find increases in violence violent crime, civil war, riots, uh, and it's a very robust relationship. Please give me a recent example of a place where crime or violence increased with increased temperature. Definitely. There's been a lot of research recently on the link between hot temperatures and violence in sub-Saharan Africa. That's a region that's my own personal research focus. There are findings showing that in periods of very high temperatures and, and also low rainfall, there's an increase in civil war risk. There's an increase in rioting and other forms of political instability. Sub-Saharan Africa is a region that already has a very high baseline rate of political instability. So increased warming, like on the order of two degrees Celsius, could increase that to very, very high levels of violence. How about the United States? We also looked at a studies that look at crime in the United States. And so if you, you know, look at cities, for instance, that have anomalously high temperatures in a given month, they tend to have more violent crime, more murder, more assault. What about India? In recent years, there have been some searing heat waves there. What results have you seen there? Yeah, there are also studies uh, from India. There's a fascinating recent study that looks at violence at a different scale. They look at domestic violence, and they find that in regions that are experiencing very hot temperatures, you see a rise in domestic violence against women. You know, this is a obviously very tragic finding, uh, and it really illustrates that this link between high temperature and violence holds at all different scales, from within the home to the streets of our cities, all the way up to society-wide civil war. 
So uh, tell me about the quantifiable data you have that links uh, crime and temperature increase. Yeah, there's actually two sets of numbers. So the, the first thing we did is conceptually divide up the data sets into those data sets that look at group level violence, like civil war or rioting. And then we separately looked at violence that we call interpersonal violence. And those are mainly the crime data sets. And just to give you a sense of, of what the magnitudes are, the sort of estimated average effect of two degrees Celsius warming in tropical Africa on the risk of civil war in Africa would be something on the order of 40 to 50 percent increase in the risk of civil war. What about a two degree centigrade rise in, in temperature regarding uh, domestic or personal violence? So when we look at that number, the magnitudes aren't as large, but they're still statistically significant. So a rise of two degrees Celsius in temperature in the United States would be associated with something like a five or six percent increase in violent crime in the United States. Now, if you count up the total number of violent crimes uh, that would lead to, we're, you know, we're talking about many, many thousands of additional violent crimes in the United States each year. So why do you suppose this trend is so predictable everywhere around the world? You know, there's a number of different reasons. There's two main mechanisms or channels that uh, scholars have written about. One is a fundamental, you could think of it as a physiological channel, which is at higher temperatures, people become more aggressive. Now, there's a second set of explanations that are very important in low-income regions of the world, like in South Asia or, or Sub-Saharan Africa or parts of Latin America. Most people are engaged in agriculture, subsistence agriculture, and they don't typically irrigate their crops. So when the, when the rains fail and crops fail, people lose their income and become desperate. And that's a very plausible explanation in our view for why you see a rise in organized political violence in, say, African countries following a drought. What interest has the military and the intelligence community had in your research? They've been very interested in this as a national security issue. So if you, you know, think back to some of the critical parts of the world for U.S. foreign policy, whether they're in the Horn of Africa or whether it's in South Asia, like Pakistan, those are parts of the world where the relationship between high temperatures and violence is very well documented. And the military command is quite concerned that rising temperatures will lead to even more political instability. Ted Miguel, this trend is nothing new. You also looked at ancient civilizations in your research. Can you tell me about that? What we found is a very strong link between extreme climate historically and civilization collapse. The classical Maya civilization in the Yucatan, uh, that between 800 and 900 AD, they experienced multiple multi-year mega droughts. And at the end of the third of those mega droughts, the civilization collapsed, never to recover its previous glory. There's similar findings in China. Several Chinese dynasties have also collapsed. So really throughout the world, a number of major civilizations have met their end following adverse climate. And, and I think that's something that we need to be very aware of as we look forward to the predicted global warming over the next half century. Climate scientists generally agree that we are looking at least an average uh, temperature rise of two degrees centigrade over the, the next 50 years uh, or so. That's a little less than four degrees Fahrenheit. What does that say to you in terms of our ability to adapt and continue to get along with each other? That's one of the, the million-dollar questions lurking in the background is over the next 30, 40, 50 years, if temperatures do increase globally 2 degrees Celsius, how much will societies be able to adapt to those changes? So, for instance, will police forces in the U.S. start recognizing this link between high temperature and violence and do something about it? Or will there be new crop varieties developed for India or Africa that are more drought resistant? If we look historically, however, we find that there's typically been quite limited adaptation to climate changes. So, we very much think that 
further investments and policy changes around adaptation are a key priority to make sure that we don't suffer all the violence that our paper predicts could occur with the temperature rise. Edward Miguel is an economics professor at the University of California at Berkeley. Thanks so much for taking the time with me today, Ted. Thanks, Steve. The electric car market is suddenly booming, and the big automakers can't seem to get to market fast enough. BMW is among the latest to jump in, joining GM, Ford, Chrysler, Nissan, and Honda, among others. But if the checkered flag were to come down right now in this race, the trophy would go to Tesla Motors, started by entrepreneur Elon Musk. Consumer Reports called the Tesla S the best car they've ever tested, and the company's stock price is about 10 times higher than it was a year ago. Jim Motivalli is an environmental writer who specializes in green transportation. Welcome to Living on Earth, Jim. It's great to be on, Steve. So, Jim, why do you think investors are so excited about the Tesla? Well, it's something entirely new. We've seen electric cars pretty much as good enough cars with only about 100 miles of range, which caused a lot of range anxiety, and the performance was nothing to write home about, and storage space was compromised by the batteries. Almost none of that is an issue with the Tesla Model S. You get lots and lots of space in the front and the back. You get an amazing amount of uh, passenger room, including two jump seats. So you can actually put seven people in a Tesla Model S. It's incredible looking, and it's very, very fast. It goes like uh, the proverbial bat out of hell. It's just amazingly fast. What is it, five or six seconds, zero to 60? And then there's that 300-mile range, which admittedly you have to buy the top-line 85-kilowatt-hour battery to get. If you talk to Elon Musk, he's always said that what he wanted to do was build a car that was better than a gas car. And I think in many ways he has done that with the Model S. So what's the catch, Jim? The catch is that they're pretty expensive, uh, sixty dollars to $100,000. Whoa. So who buys these things? Well, I would say it was your upper middle class and uh, upper class citizenry, people who love new technology, early adopters, people like that. Also, very green people, I think, have been buying them. We may run out of people who are both very green and have lots of money fairly soon, I'm not sure. But the company has not been standing still. It's coming out with a lot of new things, like uh, very fast charging. It's expanding its supercharger network all across the country. They're coming out with new models, including an SUV that's going to be on the Model S platform. They've just announced that they're going to do battery swapping. And down the road is a much more affordable Tesla that's supposed to be in about the $30,000 range. Tell me about the size of this battery. People talk about hooking electric cars up to their house. What could this do for my house if I could power my home with it? Well, I think that we will see that kind of application very soon. Nissan already has that kind of thing. It's called V2G, or Vehicle to Grid. And there are some experiments going on at the University of Delaware where they're looking at having electric cars feed power back into the grid. And it really is more effective if you have a bunch of cars doing it at the same time, which is sort of what they're working on there. And certainly you would be able to get payments uh, amounting to, I don't know, 5 or $10 a day from your utility company if you allow it to draw power from your car. Basically, the idea is that if there's enough cars there, it means they don't have to fire up another power plant and they save enormous amounts of money. So it's worth paying you a little bit to have your car 
accessible when it's charging. Hmm. $10 a day? Well, that would help with a $300 a month car payment. But I, <laughs> I suspect the Tesla is a way bigger number than that. Yes, and uh, I don't know whether the people who buy Teslas really need $5 a day, but it's interesting that it's out there. So how are the other electric car companies faring? Well, the first year, if you say 2012, was really the first full year of electric vehicle production, and maybe 50,000 of them were sold in the U.S., which is not a big number. It's less than half of 1% of uh, all the vehicles sold. And I would say in 2013, we'll probably have 80,000 sold. So it's progress. It's not a huge amount. I think one of the things that's driving the market right now is very low-cost battery and electric vehicle leasing. You can get a car for 199 a month, and that's just a good deal from Honda, from Nissan, from Chevrolet. They're all offering $199 leases. One of the reasons automakers are very keen in selling electric cars is they need to meet the California zero-emission vehicle requirements, which are starting to ramp up. Uh, explain the California rules for folks who may not be so acquainted. Well, if you look at the federal rules, all it requires is the automakers to reach a certain fuel economy target. So you don't have to do that with electric cars. But California really has actual quotas for electric cars. They have to make a certain number of them. And it's, it's never clear to me whether they have to produce them or also sell them. Because you can't really mandate that people are going to buy cars, but that is basically the mandate. They want a certain percentage of electric vehicles on the road by certain dates. And as I mentioned, it ramps up uh, by 2025. They've got to be pretty seriously into this if they want to sell cars in California. And right now, I believe it's about 38% of all the EVs sold so far have been in California. So that is by far the biggest market in the U.S. So, Jim, what will it take for us to see more electric cars on the U.S. roads? Well, I think more people have to be aware that they're available. That's kind of a problem right now. The auto companies are starting to do a lot of advertising and awareness campaigns. I think people are pretty well aware that there's hybrid cars on the market. They're probably a bit unclear as to what a plug-in hybrid is. And the fact that there's a number of battery electrics available now, I think a lot of people aren't quite geared up to that yet. It takes a while. I mean, if you look at what happened when we switched from the horse to the horseless carriage, it didn't happen overnight, and there was both of them on the road for a long time. I think if we are looking at a transition to the electric car, it's not going to happen really quickly. I think, you know, looking ahead the next 20 years, there's still going to be gas cars on the market, maybe even 30 years. Jim Motivale is an environmental writer who blogs for the New York Times. Thanks so much for joining us, Jim. It was great to be on. Coming up, Mark Seth Lender and a swimming polar bear. That's ahead on Living on Earth. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. If you're a fan of Gulf Coast cooking, you probably love gumbo and jambalaya. But those spicy delights are hardly the first thing you'd expect to find on menus in the temperate Pacific Northwest. That could be about to change, though, as the invasive red swamp crayfish is now being found in some lakes in the Northwest. The crayfish, or crawfish, or crawdad, is a native of the southeastern U.S. and Gulf Coast and notably delicious. Ashley Ahern of the public media collaborative EarthFix has been investigating. 
About 20 miles east of Seattle, you'll find Pine Lake. It's a small body of water only about 40 feet deep and lined with well-kept homes. Yellow labs patrol green lawns and sunny docks. Bass and trout fishermen share the water with laughing kids on paddleboards. But beneath the surface, down in the depths of Pine Lake... Okay, okay, no sharks here, but there's a new creature on the block with really big claws. This is called the red swamp crayfish. Julian Olden sits in a canoe on Pine Lake. He pulls a flailing red crustacean out of a trap and holds it gingerly as it waves its claws around. They pinch you, they hang on for a little while. <laughs> this spoken from experience? Yeah, you have to convince them to let go, so... But you can grab them right under their arms like that. Olden is a freshwater ecologist with the University of Washington. Over the past several years, he's been setting traps around this lake to monitor the advance of these aggressive intruders. He puts the red crayfish down and it scuttles around the bottom of the canoe, dangerously close to his bare toes. You know, it's about four or five inches total that you're looking at there. So that's about what you'd expect to see. Olden says these intruders could be changing the native ecosystem. The red swamp crayfish eat tadpoles, bass, and trout eggs. They also munch through the plants that line the bottoms of lakes like this one. And by basically being an underwater lawnmower and taking those out, they're removing the home and the cover for a lot of those native fish. You might call Pine Lake ground zero for the red swamp crayfish invasion. A biologist discovered them here in 2000. They've since shown up in nine other lakes in Washington. Wildlife managers have also reported them in a few places in Idaho and the Willamette River. So we're just going to head right down to this little bay. This wasn't natural colonization. In at least one instance, these crayfish were intentionally released after being used for research or as classroom pets. But on this lake anyway, the red swamp crayfish have been met with some local opposition. Olden pulls up another trap and out plops a member of the hometown team, a signal crayfish. Take a look at the blue color on that. It's just amazing. So these are like olive brown on the top of them, and then you flip them over, and they'll have often this blue tinge and then a red on the underside of their claws. Just absolutely gorgeous color. Signal crayfish have lived in this region for the past 10,000 years or so, but Olden's research has found that at Pine Lake anyway, they've been overtaken by the red swamp crayfish. The blue-shelled locals don't breed as often as their crimson competition, and when they do, they don't produce as many offspring. They also prefer cooler temperatures, so in the future, things may not look good for them. But for now, anyway, they're getting some help in the fight. Hey, Renee, how are you? Good. Renee Henderson and her daughter Solana are among 40 or so homeowners on Pine Lake who are working with Julian Olden to trap the invasive crayfish. At eight years old, Solana is one of the lead trappers. She crouches down on the dock and hugs her knees as she talks to us. You were just telling me about the big whopper of a crawfish you caught? Yeah. How big was it? It was 69. 69 millimeters long? Mm-hmm. Do you know how many you've caught? Um, I pretty much don't know because we've caught a lot. And so that's all. If you were going to estimate, would you say like 100 or would you say 200 or maybe like 20? I would say 48. <laughs> yeah, we've done a lot of uh, Googling recipes for crawfish pie, crawfish boil. There you go. So, yeah. <laughs> so it's, it's, been, it's been good for her and just learning about the environment and how to protect it because she's obviously into science. All the participants in Olden's study keep data sheets, tallying up how many crayfish they catch and what the breakdown is between red swamp crayfish and the native signal crayfish. So far this year, Pine Lake residents have trapped and removed around 500 red swamp crayfish. Olden says some years they'll catch upwards of 800 of them. You know, on days like this, when you see all of these people with 
traps in the water, you're actually pretty inspired in knowing that, hey, we might have a chance. Not to remove them, eradicating them is pretty much impossible, but controlling them to no low enough level where their impacts will be minimized, that's what we hope will happen over the next couple years. Olden also hopes that this model of local engagement can be replicated in other lakes where the invasive red swamp crayfish has staked its claim. I'm Ashley Ahern on Pine Lake. Ashley reports from the public media collaborative EarthFix. For photos, scuttle off to our website, LOE.org. In a minute, hopes for a massive new marine reserve hit a rock. But first, this note on emerging science from Aaron Weeks. kingdom, getting eaten usually means game over. But for seeds, getting gobbled up may just be the best thing that can happen to them. Researchers from the University of Washington found that seeds that passed through the gut of a common South American bird were almost five times more likely to survive. It's well established that birds and other fruit-eating animals play a critical role in dispersing seeds far from parent plants. But this study provides the first solid evidence of two other surprising benefits that birds provide. The scientists studied chili pepper seeds that were digested by the small-billed Elenia, a gray flycatcher found all over South America. When they looked at seeds the birds had eaten versus those that were undigested, they found striking differences. First, digested seeds were only half as likely to be infected and killed by fungus. Second, digested seeds emitted a hundred times less of the aromatic chemical compounds that attract seed-eating ants. It's as if traveling through the intestinal tract of a bird cleaned the seeds, boosting their protection from traditional predators and giving them a greater chance to germinate into the next generation of chili plants. Together, the effects add up to a substantial boon to the chili, and researchers suspect many other plants as well. All it takes is a trip through the guts of a bird. That's this week's note on emerging science. I'm Erin Weeks. The 25 countries that cooperatively govern the seas around Antarctica recently met in Germany to discuss the creation of a massive marine protected area beside the continent. But at the last minute, the Russians pulled out of the deal, much to the dismay of ocean conservationists. Carl Safina of the Blue Ocean Institute is a scientist and award-winning author of many books about the oceans. He joins us now to discuss what derailed plans to double the world's marine reserves. This is just silly. The Russians simply said that they believe that this treaty body doesn't have the authority to create marine reserves when they clearly do, and they have in the past. So they didn't seem to really honestly raise whatever concern they had or whatever was stalling them. And uh, I think it was just that they didn't want to be honest. And I think that, to be honest, they simply wanted to continue fishing in a place where the rest of the world wanted to protect what's there. So the Russians have said yet to having a marine protected reserves. What's the extent of Russian fishing down there? I mean, why would they pull out of this? It's not a lot right now, apparently, but I guess they just don't like the whole idea. And, and I suspect there is something larger afoot, which is they are trying to put a big chill 
on the whole idea of creating protected areas in international waters because they're also eyeing the parts of the Arctic Ocean that are melting to try to extend their claims there. I have not read that in any of the material about about this, but I do suspect that that's part of it and probably why they really didn't come up with an objection that made sense or seemed honest. Where was this uh, marine reserve intended to be and how, how big was it supposed to be? Mainly in the Ross Sea. It was supposed to be uh, 1.6 million square kilometers uh, within a larger 2.3 million square kilometer protected area, and, uh, and then part of it uh, totally protected from fishing. What exactly is there that needs protection? Well, there are these very big fish called toothfish that can weigh over 100 pounds, and they are marketed as Chilean sea bass. Uh, which is not really their real name. And they have been very depleted, so they need protection. The whales were pretty much demolished in the 20th century. They need protection from continued hunting by Japan. And um, what the whales eat is krill, which also is what all the penguins eat, and that needs protection as well. Even though there's a lot of it, it is so crucial to the basis of the food chain. All the penguins, all the, all the whales, uh, most of the fish, all the seals all eat the same thing. So, uh, And as the waters there warm up, it has been a problem for the krill. Now, krill, as I understand it, Carl, is often used to make omega-3 supplements that people take uh, for dietary reasons. How much has the krill around the Antarctic been under pressure because of the demand for omega-3? The amount of pressure varies from place to place. It's been sort of patchy, but that's not really the big thing. The big thing is catching it to feed to pigs and chickens and then finding a good or palatable way to turn it into food for people, in which case the floodgates would just open up on it. The other thing about the fishing down there is that a lot of the fishing kills seabirds that are not intended to be killed, like albatrosses shearwaters, petrels, and things like that. And uh, in the case of uh, the albatrosses and some of the petrels, it's killed enough of them to really drive their populations down quite far and endanger their future. How does it do that? Well, when the boats are towing nets, these birds come around because there's always something spilling out of the nets, and they strike a wing on the net cables. Uh, and those birds are, are supposed to live a long time. Many of them can live to be 50 years old. And if they're playing a very dangerous game, as a major part of their lifestyle, then it's very dangerous for them. How important are these marine protected areas? Well, I think they're very important. They won't solve every problem in the ocean. They don't solve the warming problem. They don't solve the uh, problem of acidifying water. They don't uh, solve all of the overfishing. But in each case, they let the ocean be more resilient by letting it build up populations of animals that can either respond to these stresses or can, you know, sort of go forth from the protected areas and contribute to the fishing. It's a little bit like trying to live entirely out of your checking account. You will run out of money. But if you put some of your money in a savings account and it bears interest well, although these days that analogy is not very convincing, but if it can bear interest, that's like a marine reserve, which is sort of an interest-bearing savings account. What's the overall impact of overfishing on the ocean's ecology? Well, we're actually affecting the way that evolution is going in the ocean by putting so much pressure on species. For instance, we are selecting for the miniaturization of wild fish 
because the individuals that are geared to grow more before they mature and reproduce usually don't get a chance to reproduce. And the ones that grow less before maturing and reproducing have a chance to have more of a chance of reproducing. So we're selecting for the smallest fish on that range. And laboratory studies have, have shown that if you do that consistently in only four generations, you get a genetically based miniaturization of the entire population. The Commission for the Conservation of Antarctic Marine Living Resources gathers again in October. I imagine they'll look at this question once more. What advice do you have for the parties getting together? Well, you know, I, uh, I have the luxury of being a biologist, not a diplomat, so I would say to Russia, please grow up, and uh, I would say to everybody else, please apply more pressure. Carl Safina is an environmental scientist and award-winning author of many books about the world's oceans. Thanks so much for taking this time, Carl. Always an honor and a pleasure. Thank you so much, Steve. The breadth and depth of Arctic sea ice is rapidly diminishing, and the reality of the threat to polar bears is growing almost daily, it seems. In early July of this year, Mark Seth Lender joined Adventure Canada in Hudson Strait and found a polar bear swimming alongside the flow edge. The encounter was not what he, or maybe the bear, expected. There is a polar bear swimming through the slush at the edge of the flow. This year's ice and last year's ice and the porous remnant of a berg. All that melt, dispersed, makes the sea air cold. The bear only head and face and sometimes the high point of his backbone above water, looks cold, although he is working too hard for that, trying to get away from us. Seeing this, Gunnar Rus, the ship's master, cuts his engines to dead slow so there is more drift than way to give him room. The bear speeds up. He looks back, his lips part in a low growl we cannot hear for the idling of the screws and the steering gear and the flowbergs scraping the steel of the hull. He turns into a channel in the ice and disappears. There he is again, much closer. We veered off, changing course, but the bear has changed course also and come out the wrong way, toward us. Now in his mind he's sure, we are after him, he is going to die. He sneers and paddles on, faster and harder. He is making five knots, maybe six, which seems an impossible speed, and the wake breaks out behind him, 40 meters in a widening V. It is too much, even for a polar bear who can swim without drowning 300 nautical miles. It is all being spent right here. The polar bear cannot give up, will not part from his will to survive. It is not in him, nor is it in him to continue like this. And the last gambit, he breaks stride and kneeling up like a child at a chair that is too high, clambers onto a flat of ice, the sea pouring out of his hair. Water cascades from his face, the underbelly, and swaying paws as he half walks, half runs, then slows 
and looks and comes to a stop. He stands broadside to our retreating ship, the dark skin showing through beneath the saturated white of him, and his head comes up and follows us as we head away and knows that he has won. His rest is brief and all he needs, and he clambers slowly back into the sea as polar bears have always done and swims away from our small sample of humanity and into the brash ice and beyond until he vanishes among the icebergs that are white and blue as clouds on a fragile glass blue sky. To see Mark's photos of that swimming polar bear and to follow his Arctic blog, take the plunge and head on over to our website, LOE.org. Coming up, how city parks help launch one of the biggest trends in popular music. Stay tuned to Living on Earth. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for the coverage of conservation and environmental change. This is PRI, Public Radio International. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Ah, summertime. For people in the country or suburbs, that might mean heading to the lake or a barbecue in the backyard. But for folks who live in urban areas, the city park is often the best place to get together. Back in Philly, we be out in the park. A place called the Plateau is where everybody go. Guys out hunting and girls doing likewise. Honking at the honey in front of you with the light eyes. She turn around and see what you beeping at. It's like the summer's a natural aphrodisiac. And with a pen and pad, I compose this rhyme to hit you and to get you equipped for the summertime. Now, the biophilia hypothesis argues that people become more creative in green spaces. And one bit of evidence may well be the combination of spoken poetry and infectious beat known as hip-hop music. Hip-hop got its start as a genre in urban parks, as Will Smith's 1992 hit Summertime reflects. At least that's the take of Grist Magazine contributor Ben Adler. Will Smith is from West Philadelphia, and of course Philly has some great parks, Fairmont Park being the most famous. I mean, Summertime really is a classic. He's talking about the positive sides of the urban experience of parks. People in cities, you know, they don't go away for the whole summer. They don't go away to sleepaway camp if they're children. They go to the parks. He's presenting that in this very joyful way. These are the joys of summer, you know, uh, playing ball, having barbecues. It's a place to meet girls, and it's sort of the epitome of the summer jam. So tell me, what are, what are the roots of hip-hop? Well, you know, hip-hop was born in the South Bronx in a um, public housing project. It's party music. Parties had DJs. If you've ever been to a bar mitzvah, you've observed that parties often have DJs, and the DJs also act as MCs, masters of ceremonies, with um, a microphone, and they you know, encourage people to get out on the dance floor, right? Hip-hop came out of those kinds of parties. There was uh, immigration from Jamaica, and there were Jamaican DJs who brought some of the DJing traditions from there to the African-American community 
in New York City, and they started mixing records. And the master of ceremonies, the MC, would, you know, sort of joke around and talk gibberish on the microphone. You know, a hip to the hop, you don't stop, that kind of thing. And hip-hop came out of those kinds of parties, big parties held in, like, the rec room of a public housing project. And parks where people could gather, people who didn't have money, people who weren't of age to go to a place you have to pay to get into, like a bar or have to have an ID to get into, most famously Manhattan's Union Square Park. That is really where hip-hop was invented and developed and came up. Yeah, let's listen to a hip-hop song that talks a bit about that early scene. This is MC Shan from 1988. One of the really interesting things about hip-hop from the late 80s is that that's what we call old school now. It sounds so primitive, but it was already, you know, a decade after it had started to break out. And already you had nostalgia songs about how, you know, the the, the heyday of park jams was already over. The park was where hip-hop was made. MC Shan was a really important figure in the development of hip-hop. He was the main MC in the Queens-based Juice Crew, and he had a rivalry with KRS-One. At the time, MC Shan was bigger, but KRS-One really went on to eclipse him and become a hugely legendary figure. Well, let's listen to um, this tune uh, called Outta Here by KRS-One. Back in the days I knew rap would never die. I used to listen to Awesome 2 on WHBI. I used to hear all kind of rap groups before Sample and Luke's rappers were bell KRS-One, tell me more about his story. KRS-One grew up partly in Brooklyn and partly in the Bronx. And when his family was living in Brooklyn, as a teenager, he ran away from home. He was homeless, and he slept in the public parks. He ended up in a homeless shelter in the Bronx where DJ Scott LaRock was a youth counselor. uh, And the two of them got together and and started making hip-hop music. But after Scott LaRock was killed, KRS adopted a sort of socially conscious progressive worldview. He went on to embrace things like feminism and vegetarianism. KRS, because he was sleeping out in the parks, you know, that's where the park jams were happening. Hey, the last song I want you to talk about, uh, Ben, is Arrested Developments, People Every Day. This song takes place entirely in a park. What's the message behind this song, then? Arrested Development had this style that was, you know, they they wore sort of African-inspired clothes and speech. The MC wore glasses, and it was very overtly Afrocentric and overtly intellectual. And they uh, make this song about you know, just a sort of typical day for uh, what Speech describes himself as a fashion misfit. You know, he's hanging out at the park, it's a beautiful day, he sees his girlfriend, and then he's then a group of men who are drinking, so they start harassing his girlfriend. 
and it ends in a fight between him and one of the men. But it's not celebrating that's what happens, it's decrying it. It's a overt plea for mutual respect in the community. So what do you expect going forward now in terms of music inspired by parks and public space, Ben? Unfortunately, um, you know, I think mainstream hip-hop for the last maybe 15 years has been dominated by corporate commercial acts that they're often from these really kind of suburban cities where parks play less of a role. So the, the setting for songs is in cars. You could say it's not as ecologically friendly of a sort of setting. The connection between hip-hop and parks had a lot to do early on with its roots in New York City. Commercial mainstream hip-hop has sort of been taken over and ruined by the suburbs, like most everything else in this country. Thanks so much, Ben. Thank you. Ben Adler is managing editor of yearsoflivingdangerously.com and a frequent contributor to Grift. Sitting with your friends as y'all reminisce about the days growing up and the first person you kiss. And as I think back makes me wonder how the smell from a grill could spark up nostalgia. A healthy forest, especially in the tropics, is a noisy place. There's always something going on. Insects buzzing, frogs peeping, birds calling to one another. This audio snapshot comes from El Verde Field Station in El Yunque National Forest, Puerto Rico, and is part of a new way to capture the sounds of nature known as the Automated Remote Biodiversity Monitoring Network. Mitch Aid is a professor of biology and tropical ecology at the University of Puerto Rico and a lead researcher on the project. He says to create a sonic fingerprint of a natural spot, the network records for a minute at a time every 10 minutes. What we're doing is just putting microphones out in the field connected to an iPod, and we've developed an application that automates the collection of sound. The new part was that we move the sounds from the field to the Internet and then uh, provide them for people to visualize and listen to on the Internet virtually in real time. So how much sound do you get? We're capturing the, the whole soundscape, everything that's making noise at a time. So we're capturing the animals, the rain, the wind, an airplane flying over. We're here in Puerto Rico. You can have a car drive by and you can hear the music or a reggaeton playing sometimes. <laughs> so this has got to be hours and hours and hours and hours of tape. Yes, that's where the second part of the project comes in, and that's the software part. And we developed a software that allows the user to produce a model that allows them to then analyze all of their data. So they can go in and produce a model for a specific song of a specific species, and that allows the computer to do the hard work and listen to hundreds of thousands of recordings. Well, let's listen to one. We have one from Sabana Seca you sent us in Puerto Rico. It's from July 7th, 2013. Let's take a listen. In Savannah Seca, we established the permanent station there because there was a new species of frog, a coquille. It's called the plains coquille, 
It was discovered about six or seven years ago, and of course, there wasn't very much information on this species. And so that's why we, one of the reasons we decided to put a permanent station there. Now we have over 200,000 recordings of this species. But in that particular recording that you're hearing, there are at least four other species of frogs that are calling at the same time. Now the coqui, this is the iconic animal of Puerto Rico. Yes, coqui is the genus. There are um, around 14 species of coqui, and now with this new species, there's one more to listen to. And each one of them has their own uh, unique call, and that's why we can hear four or five of them at the same time in the same recording, because there's no overlap in the frequency that they're using. Here's another one. This is from Cabo Frio in Brazil. Professor, that recording is labeled as being part of the Biological Dynamics of Forest Fragments project. Can you tell me about that project? Sure. This is a project that is organized by Gonzalo Ferraz. He's a professor in Brazil. And Gonzalo, along with his students, are studying over 150 species of understory birds. Uh, They're sampling many, many places within the Amazon forest. They had over 200,000 recordings and the software has really helped them to organize them and begin creating models for some of those 150 species of birds they're studying. As I understand it, you have over a million recordings by now. What are you doing with all that sound? How do biologists use this information? Each one of these recordings is virtually the equivalent of a museum specimen. Today, what most of the people that are using our system They're using it to create models to look at long-term change in populations. And one of the nice things about using sound is that it captures many of the species that are calling in a site at a time. And so one of the things that this allows us to do is follow the acoustics of a site over many, many years to see how species are coming or going or how populations are declining across time with changes in climate change or habitat degradation. I've read that in Indonesia, researchers are using a similar technology. Uh, They use that, though, to identify the sounds of chainsaws so they can alert authorities to illegal logging. I wonder if you've considered that. Uh, No, but uh, it it doesn't surprise me. Chainsaws, gunfire, all have characteristic sounds. And if you have enough examples, you can create these models that automate the identification and be able to alert the researcher or the authorities in the case in, in Southeast Asia. So let's take a listen to some more now. This is from La Selva Rainforest in Costa Rica. So what are those sounds at the end? It kind of sounds like a dog barking. No, it's, it's probably a howler monkey. The, um, the males will call early in the morning, late at night. If they're disturbed or even when a storm starts to roll in, you can hear the howler monkeys calling from over a kilometer or two away. Now you have recordings from, what, six different countries. All of these are in Latin America. Where do you want to go next with the technology? We'd love to expand this around the world. The project was initially funded by the National Science Foundation, and it was really done as a 
proof of concept. We've accomplished that part, and now we're hoping that the attention that the project is getting will help us get more funds so that we can put this in many, many sites in national parks, areas that are being rapidly changed all around the world. Mitch Aid is a professor of biology and tropical ecology at the University of Puerto Rico in Rio Piedras. Thank you so much for taking the time with us today. Thank you, Steve. Edward Elgar had a habit of walking in the woods around his home in England's West Midlands when he was composing. Famously, he exclaimed, the trees are singing my music. And he wasn't the only composer to look to the natural world for help and ideas. Here's Mary McCann with our bird note. Birds are an inspiration for many musicians. Bandleader Raymond Scott probably saw these birds at the Central Park Zoo before writing his waddling 1937 hit, The Penguin. All penguins are clumsy on land, but these Gen 2s are superlative swimmers, the fastest of any diving bird, reaching 22 miles an hour and diving to 600 feet. Speaking of swimmers, Brazilian composer Joao Gilberto has swans, geese, and ducks doing the samba in his song O Patu, or The Duck, sung here by Karen Allison. She joined the duck and goose and did the samba too. You should have seen the kind of samba she could do. They did the samba so long they all fell right in the water. While they were swinging away, quack, 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 quack. Jazz musicians improvise on a theme, and Dave Brubeck, who grew up in the West, undoubtedly heard the Western Meadowlark before writing Strange Meadowlark. The tune appeared on Brubeck's legendary 1959 release, Time Out. I'm Mary McCann. To see some photos of penguins and meadowlarks and ducks, waddle on down to our website, LOE.org. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Emmett Fitzgerald, Helen Palmer, Ponce Rutch, Aaron Weeks, Adelaide Chen, James Kerwood, Jennifer Marquis, and Gabriella Romano all helped to make our show. Jeff Turton is our technical director. Allison Lerish-Dean composed our themes. You can find us anytime at LOE.org. And check out our Facebook page. It's PRI's Living on Earth. And we tweet from at Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems. The Candida Fund, furthering the values that contribute to a healthy planet, and Gilman Ordway for coverage of conservation and environmental change. 
Living on Earth is also supported by a friend of Red Tomato, supplier of righteous fruits and vegetables from Northeast Family Farms. www.redtomato.org. This is PRI, Public Radio International. PRI, Public Radio International.